And what we definitely know is that at a time when nobody else was able to get like potato chips imported into the United States, um, Tyson was able to get chicken product, which is unusual and restricted from China. And at a time when Chinese imports in particular were being restricted, Tyson was able to get that product moved through the port of Los Angeles at a time when I was there actively working with other companies trying to get their foods across. So it was, it was one of these perfect moments where I saw the import manifests. I saw everything. It was backlogged. We were all being told that international imports were like on pause, on hold, maybe rejected, maybe would be one, two, three, four weeks delayed. And then Tyson comes swimming right through. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. This is Pat McCauley, as always. My guest this week is Susie Gerber. If you are an OG listener, uh, Susie was one of the first 25 or so guests um, I had on um, way back when I was just starting the show. Like I was just trying to connect with like people who shared my experience around food and Susie was one of kind of like the the first people I met sort of in the plant-based um, movement here in Boston and um, since I've kept in touch um, and she has done so much since. Um, she just released a new book called Plant-Based Gourmet. Um, she is also a writer for Veg News um, and she does research at Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition uh, here in Boston. Um, we connected recently again Uh, not only to talk about her book, uh, but she was telling me about this theory she had. She happened to be out in L.A. at the beginning of the pandemic when a bunch of different companies were trying to get their food imports into the United States. Um, And while she was there working with companies to try to get their food across the border, um, Tyson, the chicken brand, the massive, you know, chicken brand in the U.S. um, and meat brand, Um, kind of just went right through. Like, for some reason, they were able to bring in this massive uh, shipment of chicken in from China during, you know, the initial stage of the pandemic. Um, And while all these other companies were waiting with, like, potato chips and probably toilet paper and God knows what else, Tyson just got, like, the, the green light and came right on through. And she has this theory... Since that experience, she, she kind of followed what happened since. And in the following days, Tyson made this huge donation of chicken, um, which was weird because there were few food shortages happening all over the U.S. And then Tyson decided to donate chicken um, to these like food banks in, in certain parts of the country. Um, anyway, she was following it and then she thinks outbreaks started much faster in those areas that Tyson donated the chicken to. So an interesting theory that uh, she has kind of been developing and who knows, but it's super interesting theory. And that's kind of like the first 20 minutes or so of this episode. And and again, really interesting. Uh, We also talk uh, about some of the research she's doing at Tufts around behavioral change Um, especially when it comes to diet and other lifestyle changes. 
um, why it's important to change your identity when changing your habits. Uh, we talk about the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian, uh, the problem of specialization in medicine, uh, the short-term thinking of eating poorly only to pay for it in the long run on healthcare, um, the power of community to increase an individual's buying power. Found that super interesting. Um, and again, all about uh, Plant-Based Gourmet, her latest book, which you can get uh, at bookstores everywhere um, and, and on Amazon and online and all that. And I'll have links in the show notes to that. Um, I will let uh, Susie tell the rest. I hope you find this one uh, interesting and enjoy. And I will talk to you guys next week. Without further ado, the one and only Susie Gerber. Times are related is your currency. Oh, you can spare All right, I got Susie with me. Only the eat green, make green OGs know Susie. You were, <laughs> you were number 26 way back when... Um, I'm looking it up on Google here, September 26, 2017. And I was literally at the time, like going around Boston to like anybody that had adopted a plant-based diet. And it was like, I would just be, be led from like one person to another because I just was not in the community or, or knew anybody at the time. Um, and I forget who it was that, that, how we connected originally but um your cousin maddie was it my cousin maddie he worked for me right i was running at the juice bar and then before we acquired pressed before i was running pressed yeah. <laughs> that's right that's a blast maddie from the past. was like i've got this vegan girl that annoys me every day at work you got to talk to her <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, welcome back. And uh, for people listening, if you kind of want the full, the full Susie journey up until 2017, um, go back and listen to episode 26. Um, but yeah, we connected the other day again and caught up and you were enlightening me about all you've been doing since, since and the research you've been doing and the articles, some of the articles you've written and one of them um, was super interesting around, um, the pandemic and meat. And I touched on this. Um, I had somebody on probably sometime at the beginning of the pandemic. And we were just talking about like the slaughterhouses and the wet markets and how like there's wet markets like everywhere in every major city. It's not just China and that, you know, slaughterhouses are just as big of a threat for these type of diseases as wet markets are and all this stuff. And um, so we covered that a little bit um, on that episode. But um, yeah, you have like a super interesting um, theory and you've, you've kind of done some research on and I'd love to just start there um, and talk about kind of that article that you wrote and um, that research that you did around kind of meat um, in the spread of, of disease. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, it's no, it's no surprise to anybody listening to this probably that, you know, Tyson is a kind of one of these like big bad companies, right? Like they, they've got a lot of power and a lot of influence over the way things goes. And that doesn't necessarily always translate to like 
great products or like, you know, whether or not the thing that you're receiving is optimal for you. Obviously, I also think that uh, plant-based foods are healthier and overall better for your health. But like stepping aside from that, I think Tyson has an obligation to set an industry standard, even within their, their industry, that they don't always uphold. Because I think they have the power to sort of bend the industry and the policy making to their business interests. One example of that really emerged at the beginning of the pandemic when you know, the international food industry was almost at a standstill, like imports and exports were just like on hold everywhere because nobody knew what the potential vectors for transmitting the diseases were. So everybody was inspecting things, rejecting things, countries were like doing trade embargoes, all that, all that stuff. And one very critical exception happened at the Port of Los Angeles for Tyson Chicken. And I thought it was very curious because at the time I was watching companies get rejected left and right at the same time at the same place. And here we have an import of chicken from China to the United States for Tyson, not only happening, but getting an exception during this time. Now, is that a, to, to just ask a question, is that a normal thing? Like, does Tyson generally import meat from overseas to sell in the U.S.? Is that like a normal thing? So the answer to that is yes and no. There is actually <laughs> an enormous amount of misinformation in this subject. So the answer is Technically, legally, at the time, Tyson and no and, and every every other American company would have been prohibited from importing chicken raised in China to the mm-hmm. United States. Um, however, the same bans were not in place for other kinds of meat, and the United States does regularly import all kinds of meat and meat products from China. Um, it's particularly unusual with chicken because Tyson has. Um, a lot of U.S. farms for raising chickens themselves here on domestic soil. Um, however, there is a practice of exporting to package and process and then re-importing. So which one of those things it is, you can't ever be sure. And I, I think the policies were made intentionally vague so that you can you can play in this area if you have money to play in this area. So can I ask so, one? can I ask one more? Sorry, I know I'm cutting off the story, but So Tyson and other meat companies will ship meat or ship like, I don't know if you know, do they ship like actual meat to get packaged or do they ship like live chickens over to China to get killed and packaged? And and why do they do that? It's just like an economic type thing. Yeah. So I want to make it very clear that I am not an agroeconomist here. So neither am I. (laughs) The answer is the answer is probably all of those things happen in some measure, some of the time. Um, What's clear is that Tyson imports stuff from China that is meat products, and that there are also Tyson outposts in China where livestock are raised and slaughtered and packaged. Right. What crossing of the streams would be very difficult to actually nail down and precisely nail down, which I think is part of the problem here. Um, what we definitely know is that at a time when nobody else was able to get like p- 
potato chips imported into the United States. Um, Tyson was able to get chicken product, which is unusual and restricted from China. And at a time when Chinese imports in particular were being restricted, Tyson was able to get that product moved through the port of Los Angeles at a time when I was there actively working with other companies trying to get their foods across. So it was, it was one of these perfect moments where I saw the import manifests. I saw everything. It was backlogged. We were all being told that international imports were like on pause, on hold, maybe rejected, maybe would be one, two, three, four weeks delayed. And then Tyson comes swimming right through, which for me raised all kinds of flags about like, uh, since when do we bring chicken in from China? Since when it, Since when do we give exceptions for like high risk vector foods, meaning like animal animal foods, specifically livestock foods, specifically avian foods at a time when we have a zoonotic disease going around? Like how is like, how are these decisions being made? How are they being communicated? How are public health officials handling it? So it started a whole daisy chain of digging around and looking around. And I, I, I found out that in particular, pressure had been placed on policy decisions in October of the previous year to make it a little bit more possible for Tyson to do this. And this is why it's really important that people advocate at all levels of government for, with their local government and get involved. Policy is so crucial for these things because it very possibly might not have been able to happen if this hadn't been relaxed only months before. So we definitely know that Tyson got an exception. We definitely know that, I can't remember the exact number, but like 40, let's say 40,000 tons of chicken product from China was imported through the port of Los Angeles on or about March 2nd. That, that's definite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was approved and transported to Tyson headquarters. Um, so the Midwest got a nice download of Chinese intervened chicken products. Um, and no red flags were raised on a, on a major scale about this at that time. However, about, I would say, 10 to 14 days later, Tyson made a fairly impressive announcement that they were going to be good public citizens, good, you know, good fellow citizens, and they were going to address the increasing food security issues by making an enormous and unprecedented food donation to local food pantries of an amount of chicken that was conspicuously similar to the amount of food that they just got import ex exception from. So something like, you know, 30 tons of chicken was donated to area food pantries around the greater processing facilities of Tyson. So not just their slaughterhouses, not just their HQs, but assumedly like places that received some of this bulk. Now at this point, we have no way of knowing if this food was contaminated or not. However, at a time when processing was decreased, the workforce was decreased, people were scared and staying home, and we have meat shortages, and we have food processing shortages, all kinds of food access shortages. Tyson elects not to sell their products, not to put their products in stores, aka national, 
but rather to give away an enormous amount of free product to food pantries. Amazing. They're doing such great work. They're helping ameliorate hunger in America, right? That's certainly how it read in the, in the newspaper. Um, however, from an epidemiological standpoint, it set a clock. So now we know food entered the US, food transported to a certain area, and then food was donated. I can't trace whether the food that came into the US was the food that was donated. It's suspicious to me. What I can trace is that the, area, the counties and areas that have those food pantries had a earlier and more intense outbreak of coronavirus compared to neighboring counties. Counties that didn't get those food pantry donations, for example, did not have those early outbreaks. Counties that did, did. We know that eventually, about a month to two months later, there were hot beds, hot spots, totally around Tyson. However, if you look at how it started and where the first outbreaks and community spreads happened in those, in those states, you can also map them back to a Tyson facility and the nearby food pantries. Like, it's like almost like it should be in a textbook study of epidemiology at a local university. So can I say definitively that this food was contaminated and that's how people got the disease? I cannot. <laughs> yeah. Can I make a compelling argument? I absolutely can. Yeah, and, and the other like possibility as you were talking that I was thinking, like obviously there are a ton of articles and people speaking out about just simply the working conditions in those plants. So theoretically, maybe the chicken uh, import is coincidence and maybe, you know, it was, or, or maybe that's what started it and gave it to one worker in the plants. And then because of all kind of the tight working conditions and the fact that, you know, meat processing plants weren't um, allowed to even shut down um, because of executive order and whatever, um, that it spread kind of around the facilities itself and wherever those employees went. And maybe one of those employees or X amount of employees went to those and delivered, you know, the, that food to the shelters and they're spreading it uh, too. So who can super say? Super interesting. All, all we know for sure is that even, even in the last one to two months, more studies have been published that demonstrate the continued argument that refrigerated and frozen foods may be able to like preserve the virus such that when they thaw or you have exposure to them, that it is a potential site for, con for contraction or for infectious, for viral load. So that means that at the beginning, we were worried about it. Towards the middle, People were like, oh, maybe this isn't something to worry about anymore. And now that we've had enough time to examine this over time, there is renewed interest in whether or not that's possible. As a result, further research and investigation into whether or not there was a secondary vector for introducing coronavirus to that area that wasn't just tight quarters in a slaughterhouse, tight quarters in a processing plant, and additional things that Tyson did to use their power to, at very least, weaken some of the food safety and food quality standards that we have in the United States.
at the very least, that's definitely happening. Mm. How dangerous it was and what the very real impact in COVID was needs further research. But it's uh, very literally food for thought. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, why do you think, like, when we hear, right, like when we heard that this started in a wet market in China, that, you know, that's, that's acceptable. And that's like, oh, like it started in a wet market in China, those, those crazy Chinese that are eating this crazy stuff. Like, why do people, why can't people see that we do the same exact things on a larger scale in many cases? Um, in these facilities, um, you know, yeah, we don't see it like in open air markets, but they're literally doing the same exact thing. Yet we, we call one wrong (laughs) and then, you know, and this is like ethics aside, this is like just talking about like zoonic diseases. It's like we call one wrong and then because one has walls up around it, we call it fine. It's just bizarre to me. It's totally bizarre. And I mean, China is China is interesting mostly because they have a density of people and a density of practices that those people do, which just means that like, whereas in the United States, it might take us longer to produce the same result. That might be faster because it's just it's just more people at one time to observe. It doesn't really make it any different. And quite frankly, We've had outbreaks of swine flu, avian flu, multiple different kinds of coronavirus outbreaks, all because of raising animals. Like, forget wet markets or dry markets, open air markets. Like, hello, all this is happening on farms. Like, mm. this is happening at every stage of the food system. It's happening in the way we raise animals, in the way we feed animals with antibiotics, with the way that we slaughter animals, like including tumorous or um, or a- a- additional inflammatory tissue in processed meats. Like it- it's literally every stage of the food system that includes animal agriculture, you're gonna uncover, it's like peeling an onion. You're just gonna uncover like more and more and more terrifying things. Coronavirus, whether it was from China, not from China, wet market, not wet market, like I don't even care. It's just a matter of time before the next one, wherever it starts, however it starts. And the more you look at it, the more you realize the more people who eat this way and not that way, and I don't mean Chinese versus American, I mean plant-based versus not plant-based, the more people who continue to eat meat the more demand there's going to be, which means the more efficiency, which means the more crowding, which means the more optimizing of growth. And all of that involves a really dangerous gamble with with global health. Mm. Like at the beginning of it and at the end of it, from the individual who eats it to to every stage along the way, the people who work in these companies, to the environment, like physical environment around the factories, like there's just no end to the impact. And I think we're finally starting to look at global food systems and local food systems. But I still think it's a really niche concept for most people. Like they're just starting to wrap their heads around what a zoonotic disease is. They're just starting to wrap their head around nutrition. 
But like most people have a really hard time understanding that like the food system, it's like, it's a house of cards, right? Like everything's dependent on everything else. And we watched it all fall apart during the Mm. pandemic days. Like we had food, we couldn't get it. We couldn't get it to people because it fell apart, right? We had food, but we couldn't communicate to people because everybody was like in the houses. We had food, but we couldn't process it. We had food, but we couldn't harvest it. Like it was like, it was like people started to realize all of what went into their food, like maybe for the first time. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting. And uh, yeah, as we were kind of chatting, chatting the other day about, um, you know, just how all of this has, you know, only expedited consumer awareness, but also just kind of by default made people uh, more aware of of plant-based products and plant-based options. And it's just kind of um, lit a flame under kind of the shift that was going to take place eventually anyway, but, uh, is kind of speeding up now. But anyway, I'd love to, I'd love to shift gears a little bit. I know you're doing some interesting research at Tufts, right? I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd love yeah. to, I'd love to get, uh, into that around. I know, uh, you do a lot on like behavioral change and, and that sort of stuff. And I'd love to, I'd love to get into some of that because I think like when it comes to, you know, people eating better for themselves and better, better for the world, you know, as I mentioned the other day, like I know so many people in my life who they like, they have all the information, right. They want to treat themselves better. They want to be a little more conscious about their impacts, you know, on the world but they just cannot change their habits. And, you know, I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing as, you know, they know exercising every day is going to better fit their health and they just can't change to take the action um, to do so. And I think behavioral change, um, even when you have the products, even when it's as simple as moving your hand from the cow's milk to the oat milk at the grocery store, um, that is still hard for a lot of people. And, um, yeah, I just love to get into behavioral change because I feel it's really like at the core of people making better decisions for themselves in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm, I am particularly interested in that literary, that literacy piece that you're talking about, like how people know, they know it's better for them or they know it's better for the planet or for the animals. And, I really do think there is a relationship between knowing more and making better choices, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's just one part and it, it can't do all the heavy lifting on its own. So I think a inform yourself and keep reading so that, you know, and that means like knowing broadly, this is better for me. Like that's that it doesn't end there. Like, Allow yourself to be exposed to this information multiple times. That that repeat exposure and having it be there, like we know that it works from a marketing perspective. We know that it works from like a health literacy perspective. But don't beat yourself up if that doesn't if that doesn't like do all of it for you because it really wouldn't for anybody. If if knowing that something was unhealthy for us was enough, no one would ever smoke. No one would ever drink. <laughs> right. No one would ever eat like drink soda. Like it would just never happen. Like, it would be like, oh, solved. No more problems <laughs> in the world, right? So like nobody's alone in that. Nobody works that way. 
we all have our struggles. I think, I think that like to address that, the number one thing that I would hope people take away from like a conversation with me or like this conversation I'm having with you is enough already with the all or nothing attitude, Mm. right? Like it doesn't work in weight loss. It doesn't work in vegan. Now look, I went whole hot, whole vegan right away. I went, I like, I confronted my bullshit and went, this is how I believe. And I like forced myself into doing a thing and uh, it worked for me magically. It was more likely to fail. And that's, that's an important thing to put out there that like most of the time when you tell yourself, if I'm not the most vegan person in the world, I'm not vegan, you're going to fail. Just like if every time you t- you're like trying to lose weight and you like eat a cookie, you like, you feel so guilty that you just say, fuck it. And now you're like off your diet. Like mm-hmm. that's exactly how that, that's exactly that same like human psychological mechanism, right? So whether that means incremental steps towards going vegan or whether that means um, not giving yourself a hard time when you make a mistake, whether that was like accidentally eating something you didn't realize or like you were in a rush and you bought something like you're talking about like shifting your hand to the left. You went to the grocery store, you were in a rush, you grabbed the cow's milk instead of the oat milk, like stop. Tomorrow is an opportunity to do better. You can like chill for today. (laughs) tomorrow is an opportunity to be better. And that's really about checking with like your values, like your belief. Do I believe this is better? Yes. No. Your values. Do I want this to be better? Not better for me. Like, do I actually want to do this? And like check in with that commitment level. And then how able am I to do this today? Or like, you know, like, I think, you know, the, the classic examples are like the Paris exception or the going home for the holidays exception. And mm. while I've developed strategies that allow me to be a hardcore vegan, because I am a hard, I am, I'll fully admit this. I'm a hardcore vegan. And I want to sit here and tell you, like, be the most vegan you can be all of the time because it's better. That doesn't work for everybody. And right. I want it to work for everybody. And I think the more time, the more years you have under your belt of like getting there, the more likely you are to get there and stay there all the way there. And I think that's like the prize that my eyes are on, right? Is like, get us there, get us to get us to find that sustainably all the way there without losing all of your friends and family in the process, without making yourself crazy and spending all of your time having arguments on the internet in the process. Without, um, without trying and failing and yo-yoing so many times that you don't even know which way up is like, and I really, Mm. these are the things that like, again, it's like quitting drinking or losing weight or going vegan. Like they all have a lot of similarities to them because some, for some people, cold Turkey works for some people. It doesn't. And I think it's really important that we make space for both people. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I know like, you know, for so many people like I talk to, and I'm sure you get the same where it's like, you know, you get the message out of the blue and it's like, all right, like on Monday, like I want to go plant-based or like, you know, January 2nd, they're like, all right, I'm doing Veganuary. 
or like uh, I'm doing dry January or I'm training for my marathon or whatever like that goal is. And, you know, a lot of people will get like seven days in and they, you know, have some pizza with some, you know, cow's cheese on it. And they the, the goal is then like over because they've like lost, they've like, it, they have, they've failed, you know, like the second they hit the first roadblock because they've drawn that like line of all or nothing. It's like, damn it. I didn't get through Veganuary. Oh, well, you know, back to my old habits instead of like, I always give like the analogy of like, just taking like a long-term view and looking at it as like a, like a sports season or something. And it's like, all right, you got the next year, right. And you got, you know, a hundred games and you just won five and you lost six, right? Well, what are you going to do the next game? Are you going to let that, you know, yesterday's loss lead to a, a loss for game seven, eight, nine, ten, and keep going down losses? It's like, no, you just wake up the next day, you show up the next day and you put your best foot forward again the next day instead of like throwing the entire season out. Um, and I think like, yeah, when people like set the almost unrealistic goal of I'm running a marathon in six months and I haven't walked a mile or like I'm going vegan and I don't even know what, you know, a bean is, or I haven't eaten a bean in 20 years. It's like, they got to just be more realistic, but I will say on the flip side and what has worked for me originally was like, I like the firm line on the sand personally, just because I know when I give myself a gray area that like I abuse it, you know, if it's like, I ate, if it was like, I have cheese sometimes, like when I was first doing this for health reasons, like I would have abused like that sometimes. But when it's clear, like I do not eat those things, like it's for me, it's like a relief. Like I don't smoke, right? If somebody offers me a cigarette or whatever, like there's no pressure for me to do it because it's just something I don't do. Um, so I see both sides and I know like both sides of it work for different people you know? Mm -hmm. And I honestly think like your relationship to it might change over time. Like, so I think we see people who start off like psychologically, they need the room to make a mistake, even if they never take that opportunity. And then later their mentality is like, that's not food anymore. Like, like, if someone put a dirty napkin on a plate of food that you otherwise would have eaten, it's like the same as like putting cheese on it to them, right? It's no longer food. It's been transformed into garbage. It's been transformed into something unhealthy. It's been transformed into something I can't separate from like the animal cruelty behind it, right? Like that transformation for some people happens over time. For other, for other people, it happens right away. And I think what all of what that means is like the behavior the way we change the behavior might look different on the outside, but what's happening on the inside is the same. And that is identity change. So that's mm. sort of like my next point is that we all go around saying things like vegan is a lifestyle, not a diet. And you know what? <laughs> there's like, there's an annoying way that that is said. And then there's a real truth behind that. And the real mm. truth behind that is like, yes, it's, 
It's also the clothes you wear and the other things you buy. But actually, it's an identity. And what it means for it to be an identity is that there's a social aspect to this. There is the way you view yourself. There's the way you view other people, the way other people view you and how you want them to view you. And there's a lot going on there. So it's about, when I I mentioned the idea of like what your values are and what your beliefs are, it's that process of internalizing. For some people, if they think, oh gosh, this may never actually work for me, when they go into it, all the knowledge in the world isn't going to change that whole like, is it going to work for me? And so then what you have is this cognitive dissonance of like, am I a bad person? And at any time that whole, am I a bad person if I don't do this thing happens, you get the people who like, I call them the blowhards. Like they come on real strong and they overcompensate for this doubt by being like really intense, right? I would call this the almost everybody in their first year being vegan, like syndrome, <laughs> right? Like I'm, I'm vegan and I'm so proud that every conversation starts about how you're an asshole if you're not vegan, right? And then the other people are like, they're sort of like the silent, the silent doubters. Like they believe that this is better, but they don't know if this will work for them. So they're going to find almost any reason in the world to justify not doing it. Mm. Right. Like these are the, this is like, I think this is like the mentality that gave birth to that argument about like, oh, by the way, grass fed cows are actually better for the environment than plant-based. Like that, that whole world was people who were like, but wait, what if there's actually a better way that allows me to justify this after all? Like we, we wouldn't have been looking for those kinds of solutions if people weren't like silently doubting whether they could do this or not. If everybody was just like, oh yeah, plant-based is just better and easier and I like it more. Like, again, we'd have no problem. It would have just been like, you know, why everybody started using like digital music instead of CDs. Like, oh yeah, this is like easier and cheaper and I like it better. And like all of those things. And now the market shifted, right? Like, and then like the occasional person has a record player in their house. Like I'm one of those people. But like. But you know what I mean, right? Like that's that's the kind of mentality that we need to really like think about here is what does it look like for you to actually change your identity? What identities can change and can't change? And what feels more like a threat to your identity, meaning you're a bad person? And what feels more like a support to your identity, like successful vegans are actually more pro-social on the whole than omnivores, according to most research, meaning they form better relationships, more lasting relationships, are more likely to adopt healthy behaviors and be, and stay with their vegan diet because of their social networks. That's an incredible knowledge base to tap into. Pro-social behaviors. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And I, I've done, like, I did, like, all January on, um, like, talking to people about Dry January and um, kind of the different brands in that space now. Um, and there's just so many similar similarities, not only on, like, you know, just people generally trying to be healthy, but on the behavioral change piece. And, mm. you know, I think 
the identity really is important. And I think people who try to drink less or, or stop drinking at all, you know, that's a big part of it too, when they can become the person that doesn't drink, right? And they are a person that no longer drinks and they have their reasons why and they have their community and they have their support, like they're going to succeed. And um, yeah, it's just interesting. And I think like a lot of times when uh, someone's identity is, you know, that they... I could never be like Susie who's, who's vegan, or I could never be like so-and-so who uh, doesn't drink. And every time I try this every January, like, and I fail, like I get knocked down a notch. And, and it's almost like you deep down know you're, you're a, th- who you are, your identity is somebody that can never be that person. Like deep down, you're that person that like, you try it and you fail and like your body wants to do like what it's used to and what is familiar to it. And anytime you're in a situation that feels uncomfortable, you know, and you're in, you're starting these new habits and everything, like every ounce of you wants to revert back down to, you know, your old self. And, um, yeah, there's just so much behind it, you know, (laughs) I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. I love to tell people like, are you setting yourself up to fail or are you setting yourself up to succeed? Like nobody is telling you to be like me. If anything, I'm inviting you to come hang out with me, Mm. right? Every message that I put out into the world is like, come be part of my vegan fam, right? Mm. Like I'm not saying like, I am the modern model of perfect human. Like I would literally laugh at anybody that tried to have that message, right? Like, I would certainly never ever try to present myself as someone to like idolize. Like, absolutely not. I would think of myself as a person who wants to grow and change constantly over my life. I, however, would love new friends, especially new vegan friends. I would love to meet new people and support new people. Like that's, that's who I'm pro-social. Come be part of my network. Come hang out with me. Come figure out what I do that worked or didn't work for me. I want to know what worked and didn't work for you. I can learn new life hacks. Like, please make my life easier and let me learn from you, right? Like, it's a back and forth thing. So I think this idea of like, like, you know, like we put out these models of like how to do something, like it it should just be seen as conversation starters. Like, I think of Veganuary as an effective conversation starter, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Veganuary, like try it out. But like I spend the first week of January saying Veganuary and then I shift usually to like Veganuary is the start of your vegan year, right? Like it's like maybe it's an opportunity for me to use like less plastic packages or eat more locally grown stuff or like to rem- like I definitely did dry January this year. I also did sugar-free January. Like I I can like kick it up a notch because for me, I've got the vegan thing on lock, right? But like, if I didn't have the vegan thing on lock, I would use it as like a training goal and I would assess this worked for me. This didn't work for me. Like I like this about it. I still don't have a good solution for um, family meals or I don't have a solution for like cheese or whatever. And then I would go to the community and be like, okay, fam, my kid won't eat this. 
Mm. It's so hard to make dinner when my kid won't eat this. And I really want to stick with the vegan thing. Help me out. Mom, moms of Facebook, right. Or like, like, like that kind of, I, I, that kind of identity connection is so important. Right. And those people I think should be met with, with support and community resources. I certainly want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the other day when we were talking, um, about nutritionists and dietitians, I think. And I, 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 I want to understand what you meant by that, but because I think there is also like, you know, there is a lot of people that, you know, are trying to make better decisions. Um, and obviously like we were sitting here and like, I don't mean to like be vegan preachy or anything, but obviously like we, believe a hundred percent and that the science backs it up. And we, that's a whole nother Mm -hmm. conversation that we could talk for days on that. You know, it's, it's, it's extremely health promoting to be 100% plant-based. We know that without question, but people get the wrong information from people. Um, So talk to me about uh, what, what you meant by that. Okay. So, um, I'm not from Massachusetts originally, but I want to tell you that I really grind my gears. Like <laughs> the difference between a nutritionist and an RD and an MD and a health coach and a diet coach and all like this whole world, like really needs to be differentiated. So I'm not an RD. I'll tell you right now. I'm not an RD. What an RD is, is a dietitian. I'm a nutritionist and I'm a chef. And One for me informs the other back and forth, which means I'm super interested in what we eat and making it taste good. But I'm also interested in researching the setting that we eat in. Like, do we make different decisions when we're in a restaurant versus at home? Do we make different decisions when we're at the grocery store or like a gas station? Do we like, are we influenced by media marketing? Are we influenced by health claims on packages about like this being heart healthy or low fat or whatever? I'm also interested in the research that actually examines like low fat, good, bad. Um, is Beyond Burger healthier than regular burger? That is nutrition science. From policy to molecular biology, right? Dietitians are clinicians, which means that they work with patients, which means they are the people that like sit down with you and talk about your diet, your diet one-on-one. And maybe they run blood tests or maybe they come up with like, you know, they tell you what your, your weight loss needs are, or your weight gain needs are, or like your muscle, like your muscle performance metrics are if you're an athlete. And they like, they use pre-established reference ranges that were developed by nutritionists or by RDs who are also nutritionists. And they reference your values, meaning like your blood values, your weight, your height, like how much body fat you've got when they measure it against those reference ranges. And they make recommendations for your actual diet, like eat this many calories, eat this much potassium, et cetera there's a pretty big divide between those things, right? There's a pretty big difference between research and practice, between who has the most knowledge of like the scientific evolution 
versus like maybe what works for an individual patient, right? Like I don't have that experience sitting down and watching, like telling a hundred thousand people over my career to do something like watching them not do it. Right. I have observed this in like a controlled research way. So I have like some, I do some clinical research. So like I have some exposure to that. So there's a place in this world for both. But when it comes to like someone actually knowing what the evidence says, it's a nutritionist that you're asking. It's definitely not a doctor. It's definitely not a doctor Mm -hmm. unless they specialize in this area. Like, hello, Dr. Greger, babe of life. But like, (laughs) it's, it's also usually not an RD. Now, obviously there's overlaps between them, all of these things, but like it, it definitely grinds my gears because as someone who believes strongly in research and nutrition science, people are like, oh, but you're not an RD. And I'm like, you're right. I'm not trying to write you a prescription. (laughs) I'm not here making the meal, your meal plan for the next month, but I am here to talk to you very strongly about what the contemporary evidence is showing, like from hundreds and thousands of people, from dozens and dozens and dozens of studies over the last several decades. Like that, usually after you you do your like training, unless you're a nutrition scientist, like you're not really revisiting that over and over again. Yeah. Because you only like doctors and Doctors and other clinicians, they have to do continuing medical education, right? But it's usually like, I can't, I can't even remember what it is now, like 16 hours a year or something of like continued training. Yeah. It's, it's like so interesting that like, you know, a doctor or clinician, you know, like I was always told, you know, first 25 years of my life, like I'd go in, like, you know, they'd, they'd do some tests and, you know, some basic stuff and then be like, They'd be like, great. Yep. Relatively healthy. You know, keep uh, taking this for your asthma. Keep doing that for, you know, your arthritis, you know, you're healthy, you're good, you know? And it just was like, so scary when like I spent just a few months doing nutrition research that I then had more information than the people I was relying on for, for my health. And and that's scary. And that's the difference. It's like, it's like, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, as we know, they're designed to, you know, kind of treat and manage the, the problem and give people, um, you know, management solutions to the problems that they're causing and nutritionists, um, you know, with a background in, you know, nutrition research will tell you what's causing the problem, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, to your earlier point about like misinformation, like, I think it's really important to understand that, like, you know, like, I like, I like to say this a lot, like doctors are people too. Yeah. Like they're not, they're not like gods. They're not like gods of medicine. Like medicine is like every bit an art as much as it is a science. And I say this as the daughter of two medical doctors, like, I, I really like it's it's mostly like the impression that the doctor has and the memory of their training and the years of experience seeing other people where they have to basically make their best guess at every given moment. Like this looks this fits this pattern. I'm gonna test for this and this based on this triggering my memory of this pattern, right? Like that's how clinic, like that's how clinical care works. Like you've presented to me 
with these five symptoms. And I'm going to make a, I'm going to make like a differential diagnosis. And then I'm going to test against that. I think most people who navigate through the healthcare system have at least had one or two experiences where something was wrong. They, they tried to go figure out what that thing was. And you literally never got an answer to that question. You might've been given like some solutions or some ways of treating some of the symptoms, right? I get headaches all of the time. You may never find out why you get headaches all of the time, but here's some aspirin. Mm. Maybe the aspirin helps. And if it helps, then there's no more, according to the doctors, then there's no more problem, right? Because the problem was the headaches and the headaches are gone because the aspirin mm-hmm. made them gone. Mm-hmm. But so like, I think this is, this is like something to really start to like unpack, like when do, and this is a health literacy thing for me, when do we push back? When do we say, hey, doctor, what's the recent evidence on this? Like, what's the most recent research on this? What are the other courses of care? What are some things that I could be doing as a a staunch advocate in my own personal health? What should I be doing to become better informed? A, they may not love you for asking these questions. They may be willing to answer. They may be able to help you. Some of them might think like, great, like you're, you're, like you're actually interested in what they're interested in. And other of them are like, I don't have time for this. Just take the stupid aspirin and get out of my face, right? And the other thing that you're going to find is like, unfortunately, we develop evidence by specialization, which means you go to a liver doctor and the problem is obviously your liver. You go to the heart doctor and the problem is obviously your heart. You go to a cancer doctor, the problem is whether or not you're going to develop cancer, whether or not you have cancer. And we see this all of the time. I'm a nutritionist. I'm going to tell you everything is about nutrition. Like I'm going to tell you like diet's going to fix everything. And I think it fixes a lot of things, but like you need to have people who can sort of step back and see all of it. And I do think the clinicians have a little bit more insight on that, right? Like, when someone tells you, when someone is telling you this is the best way to treat what's wrong with you, they may not actually be telling you this is the best way to fix the problem. They might be telling you this is the way people are the most likely to, uh, to actually follow through on that has also been shown to have a positive impact. And that's actually like one of those things that makes me simultaneously inspired and angry is that I interact with a lot of doctors who their reaction to talking about veganism is like, sure, it's healthier for people. We know that, but good luck trying to get people to do that. I can't even get them to take their statins in the first place. And that's just them taking a pill. And I think that's like a, a mentality we have to work on within healthcare providers to like set different positive role modeling for that. But like, there's some truth to that, right? Like if, if the only advice your doctor gave you was go plant-based and you never did it and you never got better, we would not be better off. If the only advice that they give you is take your statins and maybe you take your statins 50, 60% of the time, maybe you're getting in some ways 50% better. And so I think this is like, I like to say like the culture of like responsibility needs to shift. We need to stop making things too easy for people, meaning we have to be prepared to educate them, take the time to inform people, 
We have to realize that inf- that information is not enough on its own. We have to stop treating people like kids and keeping that information from them. We have to help people develop the self-efficacy to implement these things. And then we have to support them as like peers among them who want them to succeed because their success is our mutual success. And I think that's, to me, like the, like the whole like soup to nuts explanation of like every stage along the game, people are making decisions for you. Food developers, restaurants, medical doctors, everybody's making decisions for you. You have to decide how much you're going to advocate for yourself in that process. And that's a lot informed by your values and your beliefs and your identity. Mm. Yeah, I've had, I've had like a number of, you know, uh, uh, healers on and things like that. And they talk like very much about like, just you taking the control over your decisions. And I've had people on that are like cancer recovery um, specialists. And it's like just the act of you making the decisions for you, like has a physical impact on your own health and not feeling like, you know, you're just like completely giving up your power and just doing what other people say. Um, And also something you touched on there, um, I just had um, Joe uh, DeSena on who uh, started Spartan and he has this whole like nutrition wing of Spartan. Um, and like the guy that runs it for him is like, you know, he's been raw fruits and vegetables for like 40 years or something. The guy's like, I don't know how old he is, but um, just like pillar of health. I think he looks like he's in his eighties or so. Um, but yeah, Joe's approach was like he doesn't he doesn't tell people to go plant-based even though that's what he feels and believes. Like because he's like, look, I've been doing this. I've been doing Spartan for 15 years. Like when I tell somebody to just eat fruits and vegetables, like they just don't do it. So he's like he's kind of like the doctor in a way that's sort of like holding your hand and being like you know, his approach is like, look, all right, if you're going to eat your normal chicken or you're going to eat your normal steak, okay, well, you have to have three times as much vegetables as that. You know, you have to have a massive salad along with that. You have to, right? And it's kind of like the meet meet people where they are. And there's a part of me that like wants to agree with that. But then there's the other part of me that it's just like, we have to just tell people, you know, the truth and tell people what the path is um, and what the science says. And it should be as simple as, Hey, you know, you should be eating more plants. Like you should be drinking more water and not like, you know, do a little of this, a little of that. It's like, no, we know the more plants you eat, the better off you're going to be. We know the more water you drink during the day, the better off you're going to be. And just, instead of telling people it's okay to have chicken at every meal along with the salad, like, let's say, let's just tell them the truth, you know? <laughs> I, I, I'd rather believe in people to change over time than to like hold their hand is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sitting here going like, you can very literally do both. Like what we can't do is control people, right? Mm. Like people try to think of creative ways to control people like all of the time. It almost always backfires for both people. And 
my, my response to you is this, like, if it's your dad, like if it's your father, however, like my father is in his late seventies, right? So if it's my dad and what I care about is like my actual father being healthier, living a better life through his later years, like, and it's the difference between him, like eating a cheeseburger every day and like, like dying like a, hor- a horrible, miserable, quick death and eating like a quarter of his calories from like meat and like having more overall vegetables. Like I'm going to do that. Like I'm going to, I'm going to accept that my 78 year old father is like not, not about to change his entire life. I might, I will absolutely still tell him the truth. I will absolutely put the studies in front of him. I will absolutely advocate and try to motivate in every way that I can. But at the end of the day, I still want him to eat that half to three quarters of his, of his food from fruit and vegetables, even if there's still meat in there. Right. Because I want my father to be okay. Right. Like, and that's like, there, there's that piece, like individual level versus like population level, like as very motivated vegans, you and I are both like eyes on the prize, like save the world, save the animals, like, like big impact. Right. And I'm with you, but like, we, we definitely won't do it if people don't ever try. But I also think that like, we're still a population of individuals and those individuals are constantly trying to figure out how to make this work for their like actual lives. Right. Like we know that scaring people straight is not going to work. Right. It'll work for a little while. Right. Like when people like have a heart attack and their doctor is like, you got to make a change. Yeah, we're going to see that change for like a solid like two to three months. And then it's just going to slowly work its way back. We see it in bariatric surgery. We see it in like almost every category, right? Like your health can scare you, but that only takes you so far, right? Mm. Planetary stuff can scare you, but it only takes you so far. So like, I I think there's a way to do it that's not exactly handholding, but is it like if, if your goal is a healthier person, like the person that you're talking to gets healthier, we know it's healthier. We know that there is a dose responsive relationship and that every stepwise step towards a completely plant-based diet is healthier. So you start by saying, my name is Susie and I have uh, an evidence base of research that proves that a plant-based diet is the optimal diet that meets the multifold needs of human, planetary, and animal health. I believe that every step closer to a healthy plant-based diet is the optimal diet for human health. Where are you right now? Okay. What can we move? Like, like where can, like, what can we adjust? Right? Like, because for like, for some people, it's not just going vegan, right? It's like to actually have a healthy diet, they need to like go plant-based and also like cut the sugar out and also cut, like cut down their caffeine and also this and also that. And if you people all of that at the same time, you're like, you're talking about like lifestyle makeover. It's never going to, it's never going to succeed. I mean, every, you know, I don't want to say like barely yeah. succeeds for very long. Everybody can do it for a month, right? Like we know everybody can do it for a month if they really want to. A month is like that time, that like crazy, like falls <laughs> to the wall, getting it done time. But like, if you're actually talking about people changing for the rest of their lives, if you actually are talking about people who like 
don't then turn around six months from now and go like, I went vegan and I almost died. Like (laughs) we have to approach this differently, right? Like I think we need, we need to have the ability to tell people the straight joke and also find pathways for people to like implement this in ways that make sense. And part of that's awareness. The more, like, we know that, like, the more you read, like, nutrition labels as a vegan, like, vegans, like, we're obsessed with, like, every ingredient on the label, right? We want to know what's in there. We know that that correlates to better health in general because we we become more informed consumers. So that happens. So that's a, a step. So, like, what else can we do? Like, maybe the next step is identifying more interesting places to buy your food right? Like instead of needing to buy all of your food at Whole Foods, like H-Mart. H-Mart is very affordable, right? Like people rarely, I rarely hear people talking about all of the awesome options at H-Mart because everybody's like talking about these like big international name brands that like you can only get at Whole Foods if you're lucky enough to be able to afford it and you're lucky enough to have one in your neighborhood, right? So like come up with creative solutions for people to make it easier so they can like practice over time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I'm with you. It's like, it's like, yeah, I'm going to tell you the deal, but it's like, after that, after that, it's like, okay, what, you know, what is the most logical and reasonable way to get you from point A to point B? Um, and that's not going to be from A to B on day one. You know, it's going to be from A to B, probably over the course of six to 12 months, you know, maybe longer. Yeah. So to somebody, this is like a question, I think like, you know, we, as you know, people who are in the U S you know, have some level of means, right? Like what, to what extent is this stuff possible? Like, I think so many people probably, the majority of of the United States, I could be wrong with that with that number, but there's so many people that are like just concerned about paying rent. They're just concerned about having a roof over their head. They're just concerned about, you know, having clothes for their kids. They're like in, you know, having traveled to certain parts of the country where like, you know, food deserts, like food deserts are totally real. It's like, how do you, how do we get people that make up a lot of this country that are in areas that, you know, they're just trying to get to the end of the week, you know, like why in the hell do they care about, you know, making healthier decisions or, you know, their impact on the planet? Like they're just trying to survive. And I feel like so many people are in that predicament. Like how does, how do we address that? Do you have any opinion on that? Yeah, I definitely do. So there's like an economic principle that talks about like the amount of expendable money that you have, like in addition to like it being like your buying power, meaning like if I have, if, if I have $50 and you only have five, Like you can only buy a can of beans, whereas I can buy a case of beans, right? So that's buying power. 
that case of beans, like I have more money, but I can get all of those beans cheaper because I'm buying it by the case and you're buying it by the can. The other thing that happens is that when you have more money at like any given time, like let's say you and I make the same amount of money a month, but like you get yours at the beginning of the month and I get mine week by week, right? At the beginning of the month, you can like plan out this is what I'm going to do that's going to have like the best effect on like what I can buy and how I can spend my money. Whereas I might be living paycheck to paycheck. So when that money comes in, it goes right out. There's no planning. I got to eat when I got to eat. I got to do this when I got to do this. And so that, that starts to paint a picture of like what could happen if we started to approach health and nutrition from a perspective of return on investment. So we already know that vegan diets can be the cheapest diets on the planet. Like rice and beans, it doesn't get cheaper than that. We already know that. Like if you want to live the rest of your life on rice and beans, Pat McCauley, I know no matter what you're spending on food right now, if you if you change to that, you'd save yourself thousands of dollars a year, right? Like just from making that change. But it's very unlikely that you're going to do that. You don't want to do that because you've been exposed to like all of your other options as a as a, an American man of of like access, right? Like, so so that's where the difficulty comes in. Convenience vegan foods that emulate American foods, like American diet, are more expensive than their like meat alternatives, and that's a policy thing. So advocating at the policy level to shift subsidies off of meat and dairy and onto vegetal foods that translate into like suddenly peas are so cheap to grow, which means pea protein is cheaper. Suddenly Beyond Burgers cost the same or cheaper. When I was a kid, peas were cheaper than beef. That is not true anymore. Hmm. (laughs) Why? Artificially deflated prices for one sector and not the other. So that's that piece of it. But the other is the the concept of return on investment for healthcare. Like you, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul when you choose the $2 hamburger today and pay the $35 copay at the doctor next month, Mm. right? And if we live in scarcity and crisis mode all of the time, we can't step back and evaluate it. Why? Because we're free, like our daughters are freaking out. We've got um, we've got work. We got to get to work. We're doing multiple jobs. This that it's very hard when you're locked in that cycle to take a step back. But if you're listening to this podcast right now, take a step back. Ask yourself how much money have you paid on health insurance? Have you paid on copays? Have you paid on prescription medications? And if the answer is more than zero dollars the very high likelihood is that you can find alternatives by shifting your diet. And if it's not going to be now, like if you're like a strapping young lad and and 20 years old and the world is ahead, like your life is ahead of you and you don't think about these things, I may not be able to convince you. But if you're, I'm 37, I can tell you right now that if I eat this way, I will have these problems. And if I eat this way, I will have those problems. And that's going to make a huge difference in how many doctor's visits I, I do, the, the medicines that I'm going to, that I need now or later. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. 
I mean, we spend more money on statins and on insulin than anything else. And we know that these things are heavily influenced by diet. So that's another way of looking at it right off the bat, like right off the bat. I think exploring buying power opportunities, I think more people should pool their money with their friends and neighbors for that buying power thing, going to Costco, like with your friends and getting like the case of things, um, buying in bulk online. And like, you know, I mean, I think like a big one that I saw um, during the pandemic was like nutritional yeast, right? Like it, these things radically change. If nutritional yeast is like a major part of like how you get your B12 and your diet as a vegan, and it can be like $20, $30 a pound in some places, but it can be $7 a pound somewhere else. You only need half a pound. Okay, now you and me go together. Suddenly, we're getting a ton of it and all of our friends, we can split it. And I really think that this is like that pro-social piece too, right? Like we need to support each other. We need to stop being like in our own little castles. And I think money is a really tricky one, right? Because like, just like people have a lot of shame about like what they eat, they also have a lot of shame about like their financial situation. Mm. But I think like, the younger generations, I think, are changing their attitudes about this. Like, there were all those articles that were written about, like, you know, Cash App and Venmo, like, friends sending each other money to get them through the end of the month and, like, taking care of each other. And, like, I really love seeing stuff like this. I mean, I hate that we live in a world where that's necessary, but I love seeing stuff like that on the whole. And I really think, like, I wanted to see more of it happen in the pandemic. Some did. But like, I wanted to see more restaurants become like almost like farmer's markets, right? Like access points for the community to access food and to access each other. And I still think we can do that. And I think that's like in my book, in, in, in a, the beginning of my book, I talk about like, are you looking for an ingredient that you don't know where to source? Like go to your local restaurant and ask them if you can order it from them. Hmm. Chances are they will say yes to you. There are dicks everywhere who might say no to you, but chances are if you have a relationship with that restaurant or you want like are, are, are like a customer there and it's not like their secret sauce or something, like if you're like, hey, the next time you order cashews, like can I order cashews with you? Like I don't know where to get cashews that aren't like roasted, salted, and put into like a ton of plastic packaging. Like they might say yes to you. And then if they're a small local comp- a small local restaurant, you're going to be helping their buying power. They're going to be able to buy a larger amount at a cheaper price and not have to sit on that stock, right? And this is like, I want restaurants to be more open to this idea and I want more people to be willing to talk about this because what we saw was that the restaurants were like the, ma- like the main access point in the food system. Like, they have the relationships with the distributors. When everything else is crumbling, they have the access to the distributors. This is a way that we can help support restaurants. I think restaurants should continue to do food sharing and grocery options after after the COVID time is over. Yeah, that's that's a super interesting idea. And I I like that very much. And I love what you said about kind of just the longer, the longer term view, you know, all of us are everybody, even if you're day-to-day struggling, like, you know, there's some awareness of like 
saving for your future to some extent, whether that's like you're saving for your kid's education or you're saving for your retirement. Um, you know, most people, even if you're in the day-to-day struggle, like you're, you're doing that. And I forget what percentage of people go bankrupt due to medical bills. Um, but it's a large percentage. And, you know, we think about like saving for the future from a monetary sense and we, we don't take into account our health. So I love, I love that perspective of like, okay, if I, eat better now, like in the long term, it is cheaper than if I take the quick McDonald's meal and maybe it saves me, you know, five cents today, but it costs me 500, you know, at the end of the month when I need X, Y, Z, you know, from my doctor or whatever. Um, so super interesting, super interesting. And I could go all day. Um, we're, we're up over an hour already. And, and I feel like I had like a ton of different things written down uh, from when we talked the other day. Um, but we didn't, we didn't get to them all, which is fine. But um, yeah, quickly before we, before we sign off. Yeah. Tell us. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> tell us, tell us about the book. Um, it's been out for what the past six to eight months or so. Not even it came out. December 1st, 2020, not an awesome time for your first book to come out, Um, but it's out now. It's called Plant-Based Gourmet. It is a beautiful, hardbound, full-color book, um, 385 pages, over 150 recipes, everything from making your own cheeses to making your own meats to um, world world foods from all over the world using all kinds of ingredients. Um, there are almost almost always gluten free and nut free. I don't think you can see that gluten free. <laughs> there's always gluten free and nut free options for everything, um, including I have some really great recipes for rice based shreddable cheeses. Um, so it's a gourmet cookbook, and I, I wrote the book because I wanted people to know that they, you know, you don't have to spend a ton of money. You don't have to live in New York. You don't have to be like, you know, a professional chef to eat amazing vegan food, whatever that looks like for you. I've got things like taco bowls in there and I've got things like, um, wheat la coche more freak, right? Like, I mean, really like there is definitely something for everybody in every skill level in there, but the, the core of it is, learning about what's in your food and being able to make it and like considering different ingredients and different processes. And I really want people to like play with some of the food science. Um, there's, there are some modernist techniques in there, like making vegan caviar. Um, but they're also just like my favorite nacho cheese sauce that you can make with potatoes. And I think like, I really just wanted people to have good food available to them, no matter who or where they are. Mm. I love it. I love it. And tell us where we can get the book, where we can follow you, et cetera. Yeah. So the book is available at your local bookstore. The book is available um, on Amazon. The book is available. You can find links to it on my website, plantbasedgourmet.com. And you can follow me at Chef Susie Gerber on Instagram. I post tons of health tips, recipes, little food science hacks. Um, and, you know, just have a good old time. Reach out to me and say, hey. 
I love it. I love it. I feel like you do so much. I was just running through like everything you do. Author, chef, nutritionist, writer, researcher. Is that, <laughs> did I cover it all? I mean, yes and no. They're like, <laughs> those things are the same thing and they're different things. I also like, I also think that like, it's just the way of moving through the world. I think food is healthy and delicious mm. at the same time. Mm. I love it. I love it. Well, Susie, thank you. It's good to have you on again. Um, I think this was super interesting. And as always, just, you know, kudos to you and everything you do for, you know, helping people eat better and live, live healthier and, um, you know, create better habits and, and all that good stuff. You're, you're definitely positively impacting people. I know a ton of people have bought the book and, um, you know, I'm sure you're having a, a bigger impact than you think you are. So keep going and, and thank you again. Thank you for having me. So great to talk to you.